0: Listening to a sermon audio from cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 1030 a.m. on Sunday mornings. How are you guys doing? Great. That's good. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> My name's Stan, if you didn't realize that. I'm the youth pastor here at the church, and I'm giving the sermon this morning, so hopefully this goes all right. Uh, Thanks. All right, so here's what I want you guys to do for a moment, is I want you to think back to that moment where uh, you first became a Christian, you know, and uh, for a lot of you guys... I imagine that probably the common experience was that it was at like a camp or some sort of service or maybe like a harvest crusade or so, you know something along those lines where there was an altar call type scenario. You know, not for me. I became a Christian in eighth grade. I don't know when I became a Christian. I knew that going into eighth grade I was not a Christian, and at some point over the course of that year I started believing this Jesus thing, and I don't really know when it started happening. I kind of I must have got tricked into it or something like that. But for a lot of people, the way that they look back on their uh, you know, when they became a Christian was there was a moment and they've got like a card written down somewhere and it maybe is a bookmark in their Bible and all that kind of stuff. But when, if you had that type of experience, probably you were asked two questions. The first question is, do you realize your need for Jesus Christ? You know, do you realize that you're a sinner or something along those lines where they ask you, do you see that you have a need for him in your life? And that first question, uh, almost all of us at that moment are, easy, are able to say, yes, I absolutely see my need for Jesus. And then the second question they ask you is, they ask you, do you want to make Jesus Christ the Savior and the Lord of your life? And everybody says yes, but what everybody means is, yes, I'm into him for the Savior aspect. The hell stuff does not sound super fun. Not looking forward to that, so I definitely want the Savior. But then we all think, you know, I could really do without the Lord side of things. Like, I don't really want that aspect of it. Is there a way that I could get Jesus without that? You know, I'm kind of, you know, on a low Lord diet. You know, I don't necessarily want him to take that role in my life. I've got that, that area kind of worked out already. You know, that's something that all of us either explicitly think in that moment or as you start to look at our lives, really start to think with how we're actually living. It's really hard to submit to Christ being the Lord of your life—it's really hard to submit to God's will. Or maybe, I, maybe that's just me. But at least for in my experience and in working with people, that's the hardest aspect: is to do that actual submission aspect. And all of us are trying to figure out a way to get Jesus as our Savior without having to get Him as our Lord. And yet, that's not an option that's offered to us. And one of the things that Matthew is doing in his gospel is he's trying to really establish that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the King, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so, if you got a Bible. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some ushers who can bring you a Bible right now. You can just raise your hand, and when you're done with that today, uh, you can just leave that on the seat, and someone will collect it and get it to some people who need it. But we're going to be in Matthew 2, verse 1. What has happened so far is kind of all the Christmas stuff that you're already familiar with—no room in the inn, shepherds, all that kind of stuff—and Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and we have the whole manger scene and all that. And then what actually happens is that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stay in Bethlehem for a couple of years. And what we usually think of as the wise men being right there with them while Jesus is being born, like they're walking in right after the shepherds, actually happens a couple years later. So those nativity pieces that you lost a while ago for the the wise men, don't worry about them. They weren't there anyway. You know, you can always tell your kids, like, they're on their way. Like, they're coming later. So that's really what's going on here. So that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, The reason we know that it happens two years later is because of of some stuff that happens in this story. But uh, we're picking up in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, coming to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So, let's pause there for a second and just catch up on who these characters are. One character is this guy, Herod. And Herod, this is Herod, you know, Herod the Great this guy ruled all of what we know as Israel for a long period. When he dies, his kingdom gets split into a few different parts and his son. So there's a second Herod down the line. So this is the first Herod. And he is not a great guy. He is a super wicked, super evil person. And we're going to look at more of that next week. But just as a demonstration of how evil he was, Herod was so bad that when he was on his deathbed, he said to his his army or his soldiers, he said, go throughout the city and gather up all the important people out of the city and then take them to, to this room Uh, where when I die, I want you to execute them all. Because if people won't mourn my death, I want there at least to be mourning in the city when I'm dying. You know, he, so he ended up killing all these people because he was so, (laughs) such a just evil person. So Herod is not a great guy, but he is put in charge by Rome over Jerusalem and over Judea and all this, all this uh, nation of Israel. And his formal title is king of the Jews. You know, that's his formal title. And then we're introduced to these wise men, or some versions say magi. And these are not Jewish people. These are people from the east. I don't know if east is, you know, like Asia, or if east is, you know, like just a place east of Rome, kind of like how we say the Midwest is the Midwest to us, but it's actually to the east. You know, it's kind of like that. All we know is that they're not Jewish people, and they are somehow aware of this uh, king of the Jews type scenario. And so, These wise men, what they believe in and what a lot of people believed in in this time period is something called omens. And omens is this idea that different natural events like eclipses or comets or any sort of, you know, big natural event can be interpreted to signify either something ominous or something Uh, joyous to be celebrated. And they have somehow seen the star, or I mean, that's probably pretty obvious how they saw the star. They went outside and looked at it. And then they are somehow interpreting this as this is tied to the king of the Jews. And so, I don't know if, they, if God told them that, hey, there's this king of the Jews coming or if they're just familiar enough with the scriptures that they're aware of this messianic prophecy or something like that. But somehow or another, they connect these two ideas. And so what they're doing is they're showing up at Herod's place where Herod is already the king of the Jews. And the assumption probably is that Herod has just had a kid and they're coming to tell Herod, hey, this star in the sky is supposed to signify to you that this kid that you just had, he's going to be special. Something unique is going to happen with him, something, uh, something he's going to be a great ruler that's going to exceed you. So they're going into this expecting to find in the current king of the Jews' household the next king of the Jews. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the stage that's been set here. And this is what it says in verse 3. When Herod, heard the king, or Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So it was so f- far. Sorry. For so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So the wise men show up. Herod hasn't had a king or a kid, and knowing that he's a paranoid guy, and knowing that he is. Insecure person, and that he's very evil, he starts to panic about this. And so, what he does, even though he's the king of the Jews and he should be aware of the Old Testament and what the Jews are longing for, he does not know. And so, what he does is he gets all the religious people and he says to them, Hey, there's these wise men who are telling me that this omen is supposed to mean that there's a king of the Jews, and that's going to be threatening my rulership. So, what's the deal with this? And the uh, religious people tell Herod, hey, we have this prophecy out of Micah that tells us that a king of the Jews will be born in Bethlehem, which is David's city. Not a significant city, but it's David's city. And then they say that he will be uh, a shepherd to the people. And so through the scriptures, they figure out that the king of the Jews, if he's born, he's not going to be born in Jerusalem in the palace with Herod. He's going to be born in Bethlehem in this insignificant town. And so this is what it says in verse seven. So Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them, them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so they end up going to Bethlehem, which is, it's only like six miles away, so it's not like they had to travel another, you know, huge distance, like they were able to get there that day, and they find Jesus, and kind of the way it's written is kind of this, um, parallel to God going before Israel with the cloud in the wilderness and guiding them where to go. The star is now going before the people to say, this is where the Messiah is going to be. And they find Jesus and they end up giving him the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And all this story, what it's trying to do for us is it's trying to establish for us that Jesus is king. And that's point number one. The wise man's story teaches us that Jesus is king because the gifts that they've brought and the response that they have to Jesus, that the wise men have to Jesus, is one that you would show a king or a newborn king. You know, they give him gifts that were worthy of a king. They bow down to him. They worship him. These are all things that they would have done for Herod's kid if Herod's kid had been the king of the Jews. But that's not who is the king of the Jews. Christ is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so the Wiseman story is to kind of set this stage for us. And really what Matthew is trying to do in a lot of his gospel is he's trying to show people reading it that Jesus is the king. That's one of the things that we're supposed to take away. And that's part of why when we lead people into a relationship with God for the first time, that's one of the first things we lead with. You know, we have to lead with, he is your savior, but he's also your king because the gospels are really trying to establish that point. And Christmas as a whole, if you're saying that the Wiseman story is part of the Christmas story because it's about Jesus being younger, then that is also trying to establish that Jesus is the king. But that's not something that a lot of us are into. You know, right? We're all kind of, you know, we all like the savior aspect, not super into the king aspect. You know, I don't want that because then the reason we don't want that is because we already have kings in our lives. We already have things that reside over us and that we answer to. And so because of that, we have a hard time submitting to a new king. So some common kings for us as uh, 21st century Americans or 22nd century Americans, I don't really know what we are. But it's uh, so common kings, you know, the obvious ones are things that are addictive like drugs and alcohol. You know, you see how people constantly chase those highs, you know, or constantly chase the numb feelings that they get from those things. And you can see how that can become something that just kind of really rules over someone's life. Another obvious one is other people. You know, you see people who uh, are living under the shadow of things that people said to them. You know, my parents never said they loved me or my parents said this to me. Uh, that person hurt me. Uh, I've never been able to heal from what that person did to me. You know, so you see someone just kind of living under that. Or on the flip side, someone who would be saying, man, that person is so perfect. If they would just love me, it would fix my whole life. You know, and it's kind of, you have the two ends of the spectrum. The person who, uh, whose life is just because of other people, just taking them in a, a nasty direction. And one person who's just putting another person up in their life to say, that person will fix everything for me. Uh, other things that are these things are obvious. The dangers are clear with them. You, know, you start to see how if you start really going after a person and if you just keep going down that path and it stops going from, oh, I like that person to now I'm stalking that person until now they have a restraining order on me. You, know? and <laughs> you can see how that can really affect your life you know, if you really start pushing that envelope or you know, I'm just a social meth head you know, and now I'm addicted to meth you know? and you can just kind of see how those things will really lead to some consequences because of your submission to them. But there are more subtle ones that we also have to be worried and wary of. Uh, one really subtle one that is not super obvious to us, but I see in lots of people, is fear. Fear becomes something that becomes a huge motivator and a huge, huge driver in people's lives. You know, uh, People who live under constant insecurity, some of the, some of the statements that might get said, I'm not thin enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I don't belong here. What are people thinking about me? Do they know that I don't belong? I'm just trying to fit in. I don't want to do that because of what people would think. These are all insecure statements, but underlying all these insecure statements is fear. You know, what will people think? What will people look at me and judge me and how will they react to me? Fear doesn't stop there. People who are extremely fearful, sometimes the way that plays out is that they are extremely controlling, The person who freaks out when something insignificant goes wrong, or the person who micromanages, or the person who is constantly stressed by their circumstances. These are all fear-based actions. These are all fear-based mentalities. Which, ironically, it can actually swing to the other end of the spectrum, where because you're so afraid, you can't commit to anything. You know, fear of commitment or fear of missing out or fear of making the wrong decision, you know, so you just sit in neutral and don't do anything and you just kind of wait, you know, that's also fear-motivated actions. Psychologists psychologists will tell you that a lot of anger and rage is actually motivated by fear, that really what's going on in someone is that they're just afraid and they're lashing out in this way. Another, uh, you'll see a lot of negative Emotions are really rooted in the fear emotion. Another another one that I've kind of alluded to already is the past. A lot of people live under the burden of the past. You know, things that have happened to them, things that have been said to them, or things that weren't said, things uh, that they have felt wronged by, and are still living under that victimness uh, of that action or of things that have been done to them, being so afraid of what has happened that they would get burned again by a similar circumstance. Um, So you know, you see the past just being a king in people's lives. Probably the most subtle king is the king of self. You know that you are the king really, and you're the one making all decisions. And you know the obvious ways that that plays out is pride, it's arrogance, uh, it's judging people, it's putting other people down. But the other ways that it can play out and that are a little bit more subtle is when you just say like, "This is just who I am. Accept me for who I am," or don't try and change me, assuming that you have the corner on the market of what's right. Or, you know, the statements of like, that's what's good for you, but this is what's good for me, and that you've set yourself up as the standard and kind of what you're enjoying as a standard. These are all statements that kind of allude to the idea that you're the king. And when you start to like categorize these ideas of different kings that affect us, you'll start to see that in one sense you you can be distinct, and in other senses they just really all blend together. And you'll see lots of things that have con- a lot of control and a lot of drive in our lives and in our society that people are answering to. And at the end of the day, the issue is that these things are all the kings of our heart, but that's where Christ wants to be. He wants to be the only king that you have, and he wants to be the only thing they, they answer to you, that you answer to. And the thing that we have to know about any other king other than Christ is that all the false kings only enslave us. That's point number two. All the false kings only enslave us. When you have something else other than Christ as your king, scripture tells you that you will be a slave to it. The imagery there is not one, you know, sometimes when scripture uses uh, the word, some translations will say slave and some translations will say bond servant, And it's this idea that you are the humble servant that you have indentured yourself to and you're being treated well and all that kind of stuff. When it's talking about sin and it's talking about something else other than Christ being your king, it is the most violent image of slavery that you can conjure up. It is your possessions have been sold, your families have have been sold, they beat your family before they sold them, they now are beating you, they abuse you, they are trying to break your spirit. Everything uh, that was once yours is no longer yours. It belongs to someone else. And now everything you do is for that king. And what you want to know, if you want to know what your king is, start asking yourself what drives you. What motivates you in life? What are the things that you spend time thinking about when you 're on a walk and you 're trying to pray, what does your mind actually drift towards? you know when you 're lying awake at night, what is that thing that 's burdening you that 's keeping you from sleep? Those will give you insights that if you go down that path, you 'll see, "Oh, this is really the king of my life. this is the thing that i 'm holding on to. This is the thing that i 'm answering to and what will happen is that that king will always coerce you and drive you into doing things that you don't want to do, you know, and things that you really don't desire. And we've all seen this in people. And then the consequences of this is that their life gets shipwrecked, right? And you see people who they were chasing after one king or chasing after one thing, this person will fix my life, this thing will fix my life. If I just was like this, this will, you know, everyone will love me, all that kind of stuff. In the pursuit of that, their life has fallen apart. And the fallout of that is that other people's lives are falling apart and that the uh, uh, consequences, the fallout of all that is that other people end up getting hurt. And these are the extreme cases. And let's be clear that Satan wants this to happen. Like he takes joy when someone's whole life gets shipwrecked by something else uh, out there. But he doesn't actually need to do that for most of us because most of us will gladly have another king other than Christ in our lives. And we will look at it and we'll say that this is a good thing to have. And so you'll get people say, I'm not angry, I'm just passionate. You know, I'm not jealous, I just deserve that kind of devotion. I'm not controlling, I can just see what needs to be done and everyone else just needs to do it. I'm not afraid, (laughs) okay, I guess that one's funny. That that wasn't (laughs) meant to be a joke. (laughs) I'm not controlling, I'm just, uh, I just, no, I just said that one, I'm not afraid of making decisions, I'm just sitting back and taking my time and trying to be wise, You know, I'm not afraid of commitment. I just want to, you know, make sure that she's the right one. You know, that person is so great. They really could fix me. I'm not a jerk. I'm just misunderstood. You know, like all these kinds of statements uh, are us saying that those things are actually good and they're not. They're evil. The things that we call good, God calls evil. And the thing that God calls good, we call evil. And that's the dynamic that a lot of us are living under, that things that the world says are good and the things that we live by and the things that we call our king, we are all saying that those things are the good things. And God says, no, those are, the, those are the evil things. Those are the things that will break you. Those are the things that are enslaving you. Those are the things that I'm trying to free you from. And as long as you're in that situation where you're saying this evil thing is actually good, Satan doesn't need to shipwreck your life because he's got you caught right where he wants you to be. As long as you're saying that this is good, he can keep you there forever and you'll never decide to leave it. And uh, my favorite C.S. Lewis book is a book called The Great Divorce, and it's a little well, uh, less read than some other ones, but kind of the premise, uh, the whole idea of it is an allegory of what keeps people from going into a relationship with God. What are the things that hold people back from wanting to start a relationship with God? And the way it's written is that C.S. Lewis wakes up and he finds himself in hell, and hell is pictured as this empty wasteland of a city, and he's at a bus stop and there's all these people, and they're waiting for the bus, and they say, oh, we're going to go up to heaven and see what heaven is like. And a lot of people will tell you that this is, that C.S. Lewis thought you could convert after uh, death to Christ, and those people don't know how to read, uh, because in the intro it says that it's just an allegory. So just a little pet peeve of mine, but uh, they go up to heaven, and what ends up happening with all the people who are on the bus is that they start interacting with people, and they start interacting with things, and are being offered an opportunity to repent from their hellish ways. And all of them end up rejecting it. You know, they all end up going back on the bus and going back to hell. And it just is stories of why people reject God. And so you have a guy who wants heaven on his terms and he doesn't want all of heaven. He just wants the things that he really wants. And so what he really wants is an apple from heaven. And that's all he wants. He doesn't want the rest of it. And so he grabs an apple or tries to grab an apple and he doesn't succeed at it. And he just ends up rejecting. He said, if I can't have this one apple, then I don't want any of it, you know, and I don't want the rest of it. You have a guy who was famous on earth and he got, uh, and he decided I would rather be holding on to that fame than get to heaven where no one will recognize that fame because they'll all be looking at God. And so he rejects God because he would rather have that pride that he was deriving from the things that he was doing. You've got a woman who lost her son and the grief is just, uh, holding her from getting to God and even, uh, I think it's her son comes down, and or a friend of hers comes down and says, "Look, your son is with God right now. God healed him. That suffering that he was going through, God was using that to. Uh, God eventually brought him to Him and healed him, and that was the only way. And God's been trying to do that with you." She says, "No, I'd rather hold on to the grief. I'd rather hold on to this, and it just holds her captive." And story after story, you see these people just enslaved by these different things, and they're all evil things, but they can't see it they look at them and say that they're good. And all of, these, all of us have these. You know, even if your general direction in life as a Christian is, no, I love God, I've started this relationship. What you'll see, though, is that in individual aspects of your life, maybe as a whole you're going this way, but individual aspects will still be given over towards other things. You, know, they'll still, you're, you might be trusting God, with your marriage and with your kids, but then in your finances, you are really controlling of them. And you say, I can't tithe because if I gave up that portion of money, we wouldn't make it. And you're unwilling to uh, trust God with that aspect. So you'll be able to see how, as a whole, you might be going one direction, but as individual aspects, you're not. And what we need to do is change kings. We have to change kings as a whole, and we have to change kings in those individual aspects. And the way that we do that is two things need to happen. The first is that you have to realize that the old king is a liar. It is a false king. It's not going to do anything for you. It's just masquerading itself as something it's not. And what you have to do is you have to realize that it will always let you down. It will always burn you. It will always have an empty promise that never gets fulfilled. And the way you can do that is one of two ways. Your life can get shipwrecked, and you can deal with all the consequences, and you can say, oh, Now that I'm, you know, my life has fallen apart because of all the meth I've been doing, I realized that meth wasn't that great of a thing. You know, like you can see that happen. But the other way you can do it is before you get to that point, you can take an honest look at your heart. You can take an honest look at yourself and say, where is this really getting me? Where is this actually taking me? It's not working. It's not doing anything for me. It's always letting me down. And when you start to realize that and you start to internalize that, you'll say, I'm weary of this. I'm tired of being stuck in this addiction. I'm tired of living for the the rat race or, you know, whatever it might be. And so you have to realize that that false king will always let you down. But then the second thing you have to do to replace that false king is you have to get a new king. And you have to, the only way to get the new king is to realize how good and how great Christ is and what he, and who he is and what he's done for you and what kind of king he really is. Which brings us to point number three. If it, I think it might already be up there. The true king shepherds us. What kind of king is Jesus? He is a shepherd king. He is one who guides his sheep. And there's a lot of passages in scripture that pick up this metaphor. I'm just gonna read you one out of Psalm 23 that will kind of indicate for us what kind of king we have. It says, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. When you are in a relationship with God, you don't have to live in this relationship where you are always wondering how my needs will get met. He is going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He takes you to a place of provision. He takes you to that place where you get exactly what you need for the kind of person you are. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness. One of the things that a relationship with God will do is it will start to heal you. The marks on your soul, the burdens of the past, the things that you, you used to live under, you'll find freedom from them. You'll find healing from them. You'll find yourself saying, you know, at day one, wow, that really affected me. But day, you know, year 10, you'll say, why did that ever affect me? You know, I'm so thankful for what God has done. And he will start to establish righteousness in your life. Not in you, or I mean in you, but not, you're not the anchor. His glory is the anchor. He's doing it for his namesake because that's something that you can, you know, you can go to the bank with. You know, all of us will always fail, but God will never fail. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You know, when we are in those moments, in those circumstances where we are being faced with things that we can say, man, how will we get through this? How am I going to get to the other side? This circumstance seems so great, so grave, so uh, beyond me. God says, no, I'm going to get you to the other side. You may feel like you're in the valley, but I'm going to get you to the other side. We're going to get back to the green pastures. I'm going to take care of you. It says, "For for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff are the shepherd's weapons. They're the things that he takes into battle to protect his sheep. And the promise is that God says, hey, I will go to battle for you. When you're in the valley, I will go to the valley. I will fight the cancers. I will fight the deaths. I will fight the lost jobs. I will fight for you. That's the promise. When you're on one side of the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's army's at your back, God says, I'll make a way for you. You know, I will get you to the other side. We will get to the promised land. That's the kind of God that I am. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And just the image here is that a relationship with God is not a relationship of scarcity. You know, it's a relationship that is overflowing and abounding, and you never have to worry that it will run dry because the things that you're given that let you know it's abounding are God. You know, he will, you'll never exhaust him. You will always find more and more in him to discover, more and more in him to learn. And you'll never exhaust that relationship. We've all had those relationships where you just realize, man, I've just burned that bridge. Like I've worn that person out and who I've been to them. But never with God do you have to worry about that. He will always be with you. And then it says, finally, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the idea here is that goodness and mercy will follow us. God's grace will always be with us. It will always be coming after us our entire days But at the end of our days, we'll get to the house of God. You know, we're not just going to dwell in the pasture land forever. We will actually get to God's household. We will actually be with Him in heaven in eternity. And these are the images that are portrayed to us of what kind of king we have when we have Christ as our king. He is the shepherd. When you start reading in Matthew, and there's these images of Christ as the king in Matthew, one of the stories that's shared is that there is this story of a wandering away sheep and the shepherd leaves his other 99 sheep to go find that one. And that's not to say that Jesus is irresponsible and forgetting about the other people at the church, but it's to say that the love that he has for us is that when we start to wander away, he will actively seek us out. He will go after us. He will say, "Okay, I'm coming after that sheep. If it's trying to get away from me, I won't let it. I will get it back. I will, you know, cross the, you know, the streams and the mountains and whatever to find where it went." And That's the kind of king that we have, that he would give up everything else. He would give up his other 99 sheep to come after the one, that he loved us enough. And this is typified in the cross. You know, Christ gives up everything to go to the cross for us. He takes on the burdens that we should have. He uh, pays the penalty for us. He does the things that we can't because he loves us. And his only crown was a crown of thorns. It's just this image that our king is one of a sacrificing king for his sheep. You know, the difference between the uh, old kings is that they're all about, what can you do for me? How will you do this for me? What can I hold in front of you? What can I do, put in front of you that will cause you to work for me? And Christ, the difference is that he says, no, what can I do for you? How can I display my love to you first and then you can respond to that? How can I give you the gifts first and then you can respond to that? That's the gospel. And the thing about this is so many of us have this fear that if I just started this relationship with God and I really made him my king, I would find enslavement. I would find, you know, he'd be sending me to China. He'd be, you know, causing me to give up all my finances. He'd be causing me to do all these different things. When in reality, and this is point number four, when we make Christ our king, we actually find freedom. He actually sets us free. Because the old kings are really the ones enslaving us. In Christ, you start to find freedom. You know, so, so many of us live under this burden of our, our you know, different things happening to us and trying to control the circumstances and the risk management and all this kind of stuff. And you start to stress out and you start to uh, just freak out and you listen to your Dave Ramsey and you're like, you know, like, what can I do? I just can't manage all this kind of stuff. And then you realize, no, in Christ, my treasure is in heaven. You know, he's in control. He's guiding everything. He's taking care of everything. What he says is going to happen will happen. So I don't have to worry. He's going to take care of me. And there's freedom in that. And it says the freedom is that we can be like birds of the air or grass of the field. You know, we can be as carefree as that kind of stuff. You know, when we are in those circumstances where we are faced with just trial and tribulation and everything seems to be going wrong, we can, know, no, God says all things come together and work together for our good for those who love God. You know, for when we are in a relationship with God, the promise is that not everything that happens to us is good, but everything that happens to us will be used for our good, and that God will refine us through it and draw us closer to him through it. And at the end of the day, even if that doesn't happen here on earth, we know God wins. You know, there's, we just studied uh, how to study Revelation in Sunday school for our youth kids. And I just said, hey, you're gonna read, you know, one through three are easy to understand, 20 and 21, easy to understand. The rest is kind of confusing. But the point of the book is Christ wins. You know, he's going to be on his throne. Sin's going to be defeated. We're going to get to the new Jerusalem. We're going to get to the new heaven and there will be no death. There will be no sadness. There will be no sickness. That's what we're supposed to gather out of this. And we start to find freedom in these things. It starts to bleed over into our lives. And then probably the most, I don't know, the one that just really hits me is that the things that used to enslave us, when they start to get put into their proper place, they actually become things that draw us closer to God. When uh, things like money lose its power and lose its throne in your life and it just becomes something that's, hey, this is something God's given me. It starts to actually take a place in your life that draws you closer to him. And the, the image of this that really sticks for me is the climax out of the book, The Great Divorce. And in that, in that book, there's one ghost who's different than all the other ghosts. He uh, has a lizard riding on his shoulder and we're told that the lizard is lust. And this one ghost has this lizard chattering in his ear. He says, it's time to go home now. It's time to get back. We've got stuff to do. We've got different things that need to happen. We've got you know X, Y, and Z. And a spirit comes up to him and says, hey, I can kill that for you. I can set you free from this. And the guy says, I, I, I don't know about that. Like, that seems pretty drastic. You know, I think I can get him back in check Think I can get him back under control, you know. Like, and then the lizard says, "Don't let him kill me. Don't let him kill me. Like, we've we've had good times together. We've had great times together. Like, sure, we've gotten out of hand, but you know, I'll I'll be back. You know, I'll be manageable this time. You know, and the guy and the, the spirit says, "No, you've got to be set free. We've got to do this here and now." There are no other moments but now to set you free. And the guy starts going, no, like, I, I don't know if I can really do it. Like, you'll, this will end up killing me. And the lizard starts saying, yeah, it'll kill you too. You won't even be human if you don't have me. And the lizard starts sit, spouting off all these lies. And then the guy, the spirit says to the guy, he's like, now is the time. What do you want to do? And the guy says, you're right. It's better, even if it does kill me, it's better to be free and dead than alive and a slave. And the guy, the spirit reaches out and grabs the lizard, and he throws it to the ground. And instantly, the man starts to become whole. But then the lizard itself is also transformed, and it's transformed into this horse. And now the guy gets onto the horse, and then they ride off together to see God. And the idea and the point of it is that sexual, sexuality in and of itself is not an evil thing. It's something that God has designed for us as human beings. But when it rides on you as lust, it will always control your life. It will always control you. But when it is something that you ride in its proper place, it will take you closer to God. When it's in your marriage, when it's the thing that uh, is only in your marriage, it's not with other people, it's not in these... Apocalyptic dating relationships where you're just saying, I just need to be with someone, or I just need to be uh, doing whatever I can to make people feel or to love me, and all these kinds of things. When it's in the marriage context as God designed it, you'll find it drawing you closer to God. And this is the idea that the thing that used to enslave you, God redeems it for you and uses it to draw Him closer to Him. And this is the freedom. This is what God is offering to us in the Christmas story. That the gospel comes down to let us know that. The king is here. He's going to battle for us and he's going to redeem his people. And when you start that relationship and start to give over the aspects of your life to him, you will find freedom as well. You don't longer have to live as a slave. You can leave, live as a son in God's kingdom. And what we're going to do now is we're going to take a time of worship and respond to that and realize, wow, God is so amazing that that is the gift that he's given us that we should praise him for it. We should thank him for it. And I would encourage you, If you've never done that, uh, there's gonna be some people who are gonna be available to you during this next song. They're gonna be on the sides to pray with you. Uh, I'll be somewhere over here if you wanna talk to me specifically. Or if you're just someone who's saying, wow, I'm seeing aspects of my life now that are not given over to God and I want freedom from them and I want healing from them. These people would love to pray for you about that too or about anything going on in your life. But the key here is that God wants to be your king. And the only way he's gonna do that is if you're able to see how your old kings are terrible and how great he is and that you start to respond to that and it starts to reside in your heart. And that's a daily process. That's something you have to do on a daily basis in those moments of temptation that you start to say, no God, I don't need, or no uh, sin, I don't need that anymore. I have God. So I'm gonna pray. Uh, I think our, our, worship pe- or our worship people are here and our uh, prayer people are gonna take their stations in a moment. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the true king, the shepherd king, the one who loves us and treats us different than any other king out there. Uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. And Lord, as we move forward into our, uh, the rest of our service and into our season of uh, celebrating you, that we were reminded of this. We remember how much you've loved us and how much you've taken care of us and that we would respond to that daily and submit to your will. In your name, amen.